Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. On this episode of Jill on Money, how can you be a more effective communicator at work? People often feel validated because they've been hurt. And if you repeat back to them, I heard you, that will calm them and actually help with their own ego in knowing that they've made a contribution. Whether or not you follow the advice, that's something else. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. This is the program where we often introduce you to guests who help you better manage your work life. Today, we have a great example of that. Melanie Katzman, she's a clinical psychologist, but also a corporate consultant. I think her advice is really interesting. She brings these two worlds together in a very practical way. So here's our interview with Melanie Katzman. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. So we like to start with a very simple question. It's like, you know, a finance podcast. Let's talk about your career for a second. What's the best career decision you've ever made? Moving to Hong Kong. Why did you move to Hong Kong? So I've been researching and working with people across the globe on issues having to do with changing gender roles and the impact that that was having in economies that were changing. And I had an opportunity to go to Hong Kong to do research and to do consulting. And at the time I made the decision, my children were small. My son had just gotten into what New Yorkers would call the right kindergarten. (laughs) I had just renovated my apartment and I had moved into a new office. And at that time, I had just launched a new book. So everything seemed to be in place. And yet we took a risk and everything that followed really jettisoned my career and I think impacted our family in a very positive way. Let's go back to your roots, because I always like to start at the beginning. See, this is like my dream, interviewing a shrink. Go for it. It's like having a session. So where'd you grow up? I grew up on Long Island. Were you a very good student? I was such a good student. You did? We were a good girl, per se. Well, you see, the thing is, if you're a really good student, then everyone thinks you're a really good girl, and that's when you get to have fun. Ah, so you could, but you knew how to play that early on. Yeah, I think that I was a born psychologist. I tried to figure out what were the rules that had to be followed and what were the rules that were maybe there to be explored. Were either of your parents therapists? They weren't. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, but she loved people and their stories. And so I grew up with somebody who had a great curiosity about everybody around her. My father was an entrepreneur, a self-made man. Neither of my parents went to college. And so I feel that my career has been the combination of my father's entrepreneurial spirit and my mother's curiosity in people. And so what did you study when you went off to college? Psychology. Really? From the beginning, you're like, I wanted, I'm on this I'm in. road. Okay. I'm in. But it, when I was an undergraduate, I was in Martin Seligman's lab. Mm-hmm. He's famous now for books about flourish and learned optimism. But when I was in his lab, he was studying depression, learned helplessness, and what happens when you don't have control in your life. My joke has always been that when I was in Marty's lab, he was depressed, and when I left it all got happy. Um, but um, I really, I, I've always known I want to study psychology, but I was initially an experimental psychologist doing experiments on rats. And that then morphed into people, mm-hmm. um, clinical psychology, and then ultimately corporate consulting. So when you, when you went into grad school, what did you think your job was going to be when you when you finished? Did you think you were going to go into research or did you think you were going to go into private practice? I always wanted to have the balance between the two because I think empirical data is important to communicate um, your message with. So 
I understood that statistics were a way of appealing to the analytical side of people's minds. And on the other hand, I wanted to have training on the emotional connection. So I never had any question that I would do both if I could. And I've been lucky enough to have held university positions throughout my career. I mean, besides the fact that you're obviously a voyeur, you like to hear stories. But what is it that being a, a psychologist what is attractive about it to you? Is it is it a connectivity kind of path? Is it helping people? Like, how do you feel about that? Well, to me, everything involves psychology. So I often think that people at work have two jobs. They have to be a good psychologist, and then they have to do whatever it is that their job requires to achieve the outcome. So for me, psychology impacts everything. Mm. So I love the story, as you say. I like being able to relieve people of their pain. I like to be able to create the shift in one's mind or mood that has a huge impact. You know, there are people who go to work and wonder about the meaning of their job. I've never questioned that. That's amazing. I know. I feel really fortunate about that. And psychology isn't always the easiest job. And people sometimes, you know, when I tell them what I do, they either run in the other direction and say, don't read my mind or want to pin me down at a dinner when I'm there to relax and tell me things that maybe when I'm off, I don't want to hear. But for the most part, I feel as though it's been a wonderful career and has had applications in so many different ways. Can I just go back to something you said about Seligman, about the lab and, sure. and depression? And you said something about uncertainty yes. and depression. Can you talk a little more about that? It's a wonderful question, Jill, because one of the ways that we know that we can get people to stop acting on their environment is for them to see no connection between their behavior and the outcome. So learned helplessness was a term coined by Seligman where we saw that initially rats, then dogs, then people, where if you try to do something and it had no result, you would stop trying. You'd basically curl up in your ball, go into your corner and stop taking any action. And that leads to depression. Hmm. Now, if you think about the way that you might be able to mediate that, if you can't control, you might be able to have predictability. And predictability, information, helps people cope and reduces stress. So examples of that kind of research is seen everywhere in the London Tube or the New York City subways, where now you'll see a sign that says B train or 2 train, delayed six minutes, eight minutes. You can't make the train come any faster, but you can make a decision as to whether or not you're going to walk, take a cab, or just settle down and wait. So those things give us a sense of power, even when we potentially are powerless over the outcome. I was thinking about when you said uncertainty, because it just clicked in my mind. A lot of times we get calls that come into the podcast and people are asking questions about investments. And, and there's such it's a rife with uncertainty, like your whole financial life is rife with uncertainty. And I'm wondering how you think that that plays out into decision making, that if there's all this uncertainty can it lead to people making really just bad decisions? Well, I think uncertainty leads to fear and fear leads to closing down our minds and our doors. And so if we can help alleviate the fear of the unknown, we'll help people make better decisions. A lot of what I talk about in the book are ways that people can connect and build trust so that even in uncertain times, they can relax into the pursuit of knowledge with people who are more willing to share their perspectives with one another. Okay, so when a company hires you, let's just say that, you know, I introduce you to my boss on the way out of CBS. What are they getting when they engage you? What are they usually hiring you to do? 
really what they're getting is an opportunity to have an outsider articulate often what's going on inside in terms of the dynamics between a group of people or individuals. So I'll come in and I'll work with companies small and large to help them decode the emotional messages, to make them overt, to clear the obstacles that often occur when the project plans are set and the organizational structures are drawn out But people are in those roles. They're filling those boxes with personalities. And that's where things get tricky. I I highlighted this because I thought it was a great beginning. In in your preface, you write that you're organizing this into seven sections. But I do think that these seven sections are essentially what we're all striving for when we come to work. And, And the first is to establish respect, engage all of your senses, become popular, grow loyalty, resolve conflict, fight fear, have a big impact. When you think about this, start with the respect and talk about how important that respect is to the building blocks. So when we talk about respect, the first part of the book is smile, say please, say thank you, offer praise. It seems so obvious, but the basics are basic and people don't get them right. And again, in an effort to be fast and efficient, we often don't do the very thing that will allow things to move quicker. And sometimes some of the parts of the book I thought were like, well, this is just good manners. And I guess people don't learn good manners anymore. However, I love this one, which was uh, chapter eight. Eight is my lucky number. See everybody. Yes. Those on the margins often have greater perspective. I almost thought, like, I didn't even need that next sentence. See everybody. I worked with somebody in this building who would walk in the door, is a very famous person, no longer here, would neither smile nor engage with anybody until a quote-unquote important person came across his path. And how'd you feel when that happened, Right, exactly. How I felt is I wanted to put his head through a window. Right, and that happens all the time. So good people don't do good things because they're pissed off, they feel marginalized, being ignored destroys our soul. As you say, there are things in the book where people are going, that's the basics. I'm going, yes, but do you see everybody in the room or only the people you think are important? Do you walk into work and check your phone and miss the opportunity to just smile and engage with your fellow colleagues? Do you ride the elevator up 35 floors and not do the natural networking that can happen in a shared commute in a building with people who are all working on the same thing? Or you know, So we have these moments all the time. We miss them. And that's why I wrote this reminder. And you know what's so funny is that I was thinking about this, that I always smile at people when I'm walking my dogs, you know, mm-hmm. off on the up on the Upper West Side. And you know, there's like a dog owner culture. Sure. You see each other. There was a part of the book where I I was really laughing because it's something you smile at somebody and sometimes that person's sort of taken aback. Yes. And you're like, why aren't you smiling back? But on the other hand, I sometimes think, like, yeah, I don't know what happened to that person five minutes before he or she saw me. Right. But it's the odd person who doesn't smile back. We're biologically wired to connect. And a smile is an immediate effort to get a reaction out of somebody. And it's almost infallible because I smile at you. Your natural tendency is to smile back. If one of those dog walkers had a particularly horrible day, then maybe... Maybe that despair is you know, overshadowing your beautiful smile. But I would encourage most people to experiment with smiling and see what happens. And saying hello to people who are just, you know, random, have nothing to do with your world. It just makes your day go smoother and better. And again, it, this sounds so simple, but it sets a tone for your day. And then the tone you set for the day will impact the way you show up at work. And how we show up is what this book is about. It's about how your presence makes a difference for yourself and for others. You also have something interesting in the book about 
you have to be able to not necessarily be an immediate problem solver. And I found that interesting because a lot of executives and managers are seen as like, fix it, just fix it. Like, you know, we have a dysfunctional organization. You just hired Melanie and now like it's going to be fixed, right? Yeah. And what is the response to that? What's the appropriate response? So you want to set, as a manager, you want to set the stage for people to do their best work. That doesn't mean you do that work. So I know Sheryl Sandberg wrote a book about lean in, and I certainly understand the reason for that. But I often find myself encouraging people to lean out, to provide the safe space for people to feel respected and able to experiment with their own ideas. So you want the people around you to feel that they can come to you with potential solutions and you're there to facilitate their answers, but not to always push yours. Yeah, that's interesting. I had interviewed the guy who is um, head of Dunkin' Brands, like Dunkin' Donuts, and he's a British guy. And he said he used to have this open office hours Mm -hmm. and he would have an hour and he would basically say to people, what's on your mind? Yep. And I thought that's kind of a cool thing. I mean, look, at some point you need someone to be the decision maker, but you want to be able to be make a decision based on all the available information. Exactly, Jill. So this is not about abdicating responsibility. So when I say lean out, I'm talking about deliberately putting a pause in. That in the race to the finish line, we sometimes lose critical data because we're moving so quickly. We're not looking, seeing, listening, or making ourselves available for people to come through the door and share their perspective. How can we balance that with what um, we used to call in the money management business as analysis paralysis? That I'm going to like scorch the earth, do every bit of research, and I just have a really hard time pulling the trigger. Even after I've listened to everyone and talked to everybody, I wonder, is that grounded in some just, I don't want to, I don't want to make a mistake or... Well, I think so. There's a couple of chapters actually in the book that speak to that. One has to do with role clarity. So who needs to do what, when? The other is about respecting time. So what's the deadline? Does everybody know? And then what information do you need to know when you're done? We often don't know when we're done. And if you're the kind of person or team that has analysis paralysis, it's worth labeling it as such. And then saying, okay, who's going to be our minute manager? Who's the one who's going to send up the flag and has permission to do so? Where it's like, you know what? We have this deadline. We have these set of expectations. It's time. This is Jill on Money. Hey, gang, it's me, Jill Schlesinger. You know that. You're listening to The Pod, certified financial planner, CBS News business analyst, host of this here podcast, Jill on Money. And I am here to tell you about our sponsor, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. They're helping people achieve financial well-being with simple and transparent banking products including Clarity Money. That's a free personal finance management app that's part of the Marcus family. Clarity Money is your AI-powered financial champion that shows you a simple view of your finances together in one place. They recently launched a weekly budgeting feature that you've just got to try. The app does the hard part for you and calculates your average weekly spend by category. You can take that information so you can set informed budget goals based on what matters most to you. You can also subscribe to budget alerts to help keep you on track and start with a clean slate every week. Who doesn't want that? It's super easy to use and can make a task like budgeting kind of fun. So go check it out. Download Clarity Money through Google Play or iTunes or visit Marcus.com forward slash Clarity. 
And now back to our interview with Melanie Katzman. Is there ever a danger of soliciting too much so that everybody should tell me every single idea ever, 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 ever? And then all of a sudden you're sort of inundated and and you can't satisfy many of these people. So first of all, one of the things I always remind everybody is that you can take opinions, but you don't have to follow them. And that's important to tell everybody when you're doing either a company poll or you're having a conversation. I'm interested, but I'm not committed to doing what it is that you're telling me. So people often feel validated because they've been heard. Mm -hmm. And if you repeat back to them, I heard you, that will calm them and actually help with their own ego in knowing that they've made a contribution. Whether or not you follow the advice, that's something else. In your training as a therapist, is the training such that usually you're trying to get the patient to come to the conclusion him or herself? I'd say that that's a basis, but it's also about... I think providing the guardrail sometimes and saying to someone, you know, you're veering off in a direction that may not be helpful for you. And also, there are times when I do share my perspective. I know that there is a school of therapeutic training that says that, you know, you should be more of a blank slate. And I don't 100 percent buy into that. People are paying for my expertise. And over the course of three decades, I've accumulated quite a bit of expertise and I feel a responsibility to share it. Do you need to ask permission before you offer that direction? Or is it just that the engagement itself, like you are in my office, we are talking, I will now offer my opinion? So I have an unusual career in that I continue to maintain a therapeutic practice. So I see people privately as a clinical psychologist. I also work with multinational companies and sit in the boardroom and facilitate discussions during very serious mergers or acquisitions. Um, And I also work with startups. So here I am, you know, the same person, but in many different settings. In each one of those instances, I'm helping to generate hypotheses. Is this going on? Let's test it. So I'm not presenting as if my opinion trumps all others, but I am presenting an idea for discussion. And people either want to kind of take that out of the box and, you know, play with it and put it back in another shape or they discard it. If you have a CEO or a manager who has what you believe an incorrect perception of him or herself in because obviously you come in and you get exposed to everybody right you get to interview everybody it's kind of cool like you get the blank check and you like to let me just tell you how you're actually perceived yes how how is that how have you become adept at giving that information without a making someone cry or b not having that person's back up against the wall so that's the secret sauce i think about being a psychologist that goes into companies is that i'm often hired to speak truth to power And sadly, many people don't speak truth to the people that they're reporting to. So I get a a slate of potential interviewees. I always ask for the best distractors because it's not enough for me to talk to the people who are going to tell me about all of the things that are going well. I want to know who's an opinion maker, who might have sightlines into the things that aren't going well. My job is to get that information and then to sanitize it, if you will, Mm -hmm. to to listen for themes, but then to put it together in a way that all of the identities are protected, that the themes are brought to light, and that I can present it back to somebody in a way that they can digest it. Because defenses go up very quickly, but the skill is being able to objectively say, here are the things that are going well. We all need to hear that. Most people don't take enough time to listen to the positive. And then here are ways that you might be able to develop And here are some ways that you might be able to impact those challenges very quickly. I think that sometimes when you have somebody who says they want feedback, Mm -hmm. it's baloney. And 
if it goes on for so long, eventually the best people leave. So how do we help those kinds of like intractable personalities? Well, that's, types? I think, part of the reasons why people bring somebody in from the outside, like myself. It's going on in one of the companies I'm working with now where I've given feedback to the CEO. He's heard a little. He shared the feedback with his um, senior team, and it wasn't exactly what I said, and they weren't particularly thrilled with the way in which it was fed back to them. But because I am the outsider, I have the opportunity to go back and say, let's just review what messages you heard and what you're communicating. It's funny because there are so many, um, obviously, there's a zillion personality types, but sometimes I think we we lump in like the CEO as a certain type, like the yeah. hard edge man, woman, do it, do, 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 do. And as you say in the book, like, listen, we're all human beings and we have tons of feelings and we do all want to connect. Absolutely. Yesterday, I was in L.A. kicking off an international conference for a group that is ranging from most junior managers to the most senior. And one of the things that really struck home for everyone in the room, because I could see them nodding their heads, was bosses have feelings too, right? If your boss is doing a good job, tell them. They just delivered an awesome address, tell them. You saw the effect of their efforts, tell them. And, you know, in my position, I get to hear the emotional state from people at all ends of the corporate continuum. And I think people forget that we're all human. Your boss wants to be acknowledged in the same way you do. Who's a client you won't take? Give me like a personality type that you just are like, ugh, I had a terrible conversation. Like someone will call you up and like, oh my God, Melanie, I got to hire you. And then the conversation ensues and you're like, oh, I'm not working with that person. It's pretty hard to do that. I mean, if somebody is really nasty and egregious on the phone, sometimes my clinical muscle gets engaged and I'm like, okay, this is a challenge. So it's really hard for me to say no, because I do believe a lot of nuts haven't been cracked because people walked away from them. And that kind of scary, nasty persona just signals how much someone is suffering. Mm. Um, And when they're in that much pain, the opportunity to relieve the tension is that much greater. So I often do my best work with the most horrible initial sounding clients. I just want to go back to something you said earlier, because you said you did a lot of work on diversity in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And so how do you feel like that conversation is continuing, you know, here in 2019? Um, So you asked me before about are there things that I would say no to. One of the things that I'm currently saying no to are diversity programs for female leadership, where it's women talking to women about women. And so I've just I've done a lot of these programs and I'm not convinced that they're as effective as when you have advocates in the room that are coming from a very different perspective. And so these days when I'm working on diversity programs, I want to know that there are male champions, that they're the ones who are going to come together and work with me first. And then we can integrate the room, if you will, and bring women in. How do you feel about hard quotas around hiring, boards, um, senior management? For example, you know, in in some countries in Europe, they say you've got to have X number, you know, 40 percent of board seats must be held by women. Well, so if I were the queen of the world and you are uh, right now, then I'm going to put on my crown. and I'm going to tell you what I think. We need to have diversity of thinking and feeling and analyzing problems. So if you were putting your board together and you were assessing people on the quality of their thought, the capability that they have to scan the universe and bring in new information, and then you just saw who passed those screenings, I suggest that you may end up with a very diverse group of people in the room. 
who have, you know, lots of different color skins and, you know, sexual orientations and the whole uh, spectrum of diversity. Instead, what we do is we try to find somebody who has had this amount of, you know, profit under their, you know, what kind of P&L have they managed and have they been in the sector and how many years? And I think those kinds of definitions are holding us back. So initially, I would like to see diversity defined in the traits that people bring versus what their resume says. And, you know, it's so hard. I had a, um, a young entrepreneur growing company comes to me and says, oh, I really need women on my board. Yep. I'm like, okay, great. I send him three or four women, all of whom are, when I tell you, really interesting, cool, great prospects. And he rejects each of them because for one reason or another, you know, oh, well, she doesn't have C-suite experience or, you know, well, she really isn't, she doesn't have uh, direct financial services. Mm -hmm. She's more from technology. And I thought to myself, this guy only wants to hire people like himself. And this is the argument for the quotas, right? Because like you, I hear this over and over again, that there's a reason why someone isn't qualified. And it goes back to my statement, what is qualifications? Like, how are you defining what you need? Do you really need to have someone who has the exact resume that you have? Or do you need somebody who's going to bring something into that room that is currently missing? And that doesn't mean hiring mini-me's. All right, last before I go, I have a lot of chapters highlighted here at the end. And the book is called Connect First, 52 Simple Ways to Ignite Success, Meaning, and Joy at Work. I love your cover art also. Thank you. Um, Of course, you're a shrink, so you're going to love standing in someone else's shoes, which is, you know, you're highly empathetic. I totally get that. I like chapter 33, Apologize. Mm -hmm. Don't justify or explain why. And now I need to talk to you about why especially in the workplace, people don't apologize. What holds them back? People are always so afraid that they're going to lose their power, lose their power because they give someone else credit, lose their power because they're going to say, I'm sorry, or admit to an error. It's just the opposite. You know, we are attracted to and want to work with people who treat us with respect, who are honest, and who take responsibility. And if I apologize to you and say, Jill, I'm sorry I made you feel the way you do, which is such a common way, that's not an apology. Right. That's telling you it's your fault. And I'm then abdicating any responsibility. So I think knowing how to apologize well is a skill. Melanie, when we started the interview, I said your best career or financial decision, your best decision on that front. What was your worst career decision? Hmm. I would say more the worst career moment was when I was working in a foreign country with people who I didn't know that well. And rather than be myself, I tried to be such a chameleon that I was mimicking other people. And it was like wearing someone else's clothes and walking in their shoes that didn't fit. And I lost myself. And so I think as much as I encourage people to be flexible to try on different styles. You have to still remember and stay true to your inner core. You know, who are you and what do you stand for? Flex, adapt, but don't lose yourself. You're listening to Jill on Money. It's time for the Marcus Minute. We're presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Today in the hot seat, Melanie Katzman. She is an author. She's a shrink. She's a consultant. She's everything. It's amazing. Are you ready to play? Sure. Let's go for it. What's one word to describe your relationship with money? comfortable. What's always worth spending on? Friendship. What's the dumbest thing you've spent money on? Bad food. 
All right. This is great. How much do you spend on a haircut? And I know you're a New York City person, so you can we, are, well, we know it's inflation adjusted. How much do you spend on a haircut? One hundred and ten dollars. And I don't do them very often. It's your last day on Earth. Speaking about spending money on a bad meal, you've got a hundred bucks in your pocket. What's your last meal? Octopus. Get out of here. I love it. All those squishy kind of suction cups. I don't cups. think I have ever gotten that answer, and I love it. Melanie A. Katzman, Ph.D. She's a doctor. She is a brilliant writer. You really just synth- you synthesize everything. It's great. It's a great read. Connect First, 52 Simple Ways to Ignite Success, Meaning, and Joy at Work. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Melanie Katzman. Her book is called Connect First, 52 Simple Ways to Ignite Success, Meaning, and Joy at Work. We drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday, and sometimes we throw in a bonus episode. If you want to make sure to get every single one, just subscribe to us. You can do that on Apple, Stitcher, Radio.com, Google Play, anywhere else you find your favorite podcasts. And don't forget, if you've got a financial question, shoot us an email. Ask Jill at JillOnMoney.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13. And the show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs.